was sort of a planning year for us, uh, at least when it comes to outdoors. Um, we built, uh, the summer, last summer we built our chicken coop and had to wait like six months. Now we're like rolling in eggs, so get to enjoy that, thankful for that. Uh, also planted some fruit trees, trying to follow my neighbor's example. He seems to have, both of them seem to have big gardens and green thumbs. Uh, still trying to determine if my thumbs are green enough for this or not, but he bought some fruit trees, planted some fruit trees. I said, that sounds good. Uh, where'd you get them? He told me Stark Brothers website online, provide a guarantee. So I ordered some fruit trees for our zone, planted them in the backyard, six little sticks planted out of the ground. And We'll see what happens. And the reason I like Stark Brothers for this is they give a year warranty. So if this spring, they guarantee their plants. If this spring there's uh, no growth, I'm going to rip them up out of the ground, ship them back, get a new tree. Because, I mean, what good is a tree if there's no fruit? Over the last couple weeks, we looked at an incredible story. Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 We saw that the heartbeat of this story was that God tests his people and that his people obey. Why do his people obey? Because God's people, as his loved children, fear him as their loving father. And we discussed what that meant. That passage is remarkable in that it doesn't spend any time at all on Abraham's heart response or his emotions. We try to draw that out, but it it almost seems as simple as if I were to ask one of my kids to refill my water at dinner. Hey, Juliet, would you get me a drink of water? And she'd say, sure, Dad. Just like that. Such was Abraham's fear of the Lord or his devoted love for God, a devotion so strong that he delighted to obey God. Delighted with such devotion that without flinching, he trusted God to solve all the problems that Abraham didn't understand. That's what it is to walk in the fear of the Lord, fear of God as his father. Regularly in our study of Genesis, we've stopped to look at various New Testament passages. It's not because we're bored of Genesis. We just want to be able to see how Scripture can guide our understanding of Scripture. That's a really important principle, that Scripture itself guides our understanding of Scripture. That's why it's not just one read-through and you're done. Scripture is what we call progressive revelation. Now, progressive has its own meaning today, doesn't it? That's not what we mean. It means that it's given to us over a progress of time. God's plan unfolds over time. The hidden mysteries of his plan in the Old Testament become unveiled or revealed after the coming of Christ in the New Testament. So we stand, as it were, at a higher vantage point with the New Testament authors with them, and we we look back over the landscape of God's plan in the Old Testament, really even coming to understand what the Old Testament authors were talking about and pointing to better than they did. They longed to look into the things that we see with clarity because Christ has come. That's what we mean by this progress of revelation or progressive revelation unfolding across God's word. So that's why we go to the New Testament, especially whenever the New Testament references one of our passages, we want to stop and be like, okay, what did this author say about this? The book of James in the New Testament uses Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac found in Genesis 22 as an example for understanding faith and works. So if you turn to James chapter 2 in the New Testament, 
James chapter 2, we'll read verses 14 to 26 and discuss those. James 2, 14 to 26. Jumping right in the middle of, of James' book, it says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Well, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. May the Lord give us understanding of his word today. This passage in James chapter 2 begins with an important question like this. What good is faith without works? Or, Or this, is a worksless faith able to save someone? In order to answer his question, James uses an illustration that you just heard me read, an illustration regarding love for a poor, needy brother or sister. If someone is walking around outside in January, you know, the one cold week in January, and you say, I, I hope you get warm, without giving them a coat, like, what, what good does your statement do them? Uh, my sister and I both attended college in northeast Wisconsin, 100 miles north of Green Bay. Um, so, like, our cold here is warm there in January. Um, the school ended up being known by a number of different, through missionary efforts and things like that, a number of different places. And so there were, there were brothers, sisters from the Dominican Republic or from the Philippines that would come to campus. And August was probably a little bit chilly for them, but comfortably chilly. Uh, and they just had no concept of what was waiting for them when they would fly back second semester from Philippines or Dominican Republic in January to Northeast Wisconsin in January. And so they would have a coat, like a windbreaker, and people would be like, no, 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 no. We got to layer you up, right? But if one of their, you know, Michigan friends was just kind of like, have a good day at class, be warm, they'd find them as like an ice cube on the sidewalk. What good does it do to say, hey, be warm without doing something about it? That's not love. If your brother or sister is hungry, you don't have, and they don't have anything to eat, and you say, hey, I hope you find a meal, without giving them any food, do your good wishes fill their bellies? Of course not. It, it does about as much good as changing your profile picture to raise awareness uh, for a cause on your social media accounts. I mean, you may feel better because you did something or said something 
uh, but in reality, you didn't do anything. I've actually read that telling another person, here's your New Year's resolution. I appreciated Chris coming in last month to just be like, just don't, just don't even bother. No hand raise, no guilt. I didn't even make any resolutions because I knew that they wouldn't stick. But here's the problem. This is why it's bad to make resolutions like that. I read that telling another person that you intend to change something can give you such a strong feeling of accomplishment that it reduces your motivation to actually do the thing. It, f- it can feel as good to tell somebody that you're going to do something as it does to actually do something, and it's a lot easier. Talking and planning are a lot easier than doing, but a profession is just words without proof. What good do words do? What does my wedding ring or my vows of faithfulness mean to Leanne? What do they mean at our wedding if I don't live in faithfulness to her? Just words. What does it mean to say that I love my kids if I never provide for them, I never protect them, I never spend time with them, I never listen to them, I never train them, I never tell them about Jesus? Like, What good does it do for me to say something if I don't do anything? In the same way, what does it mean to say I have faith in God if there is no proof of that faith in my life? And what is the proof of faith? James tells us in verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The proof of faith is good works. Now, faith doesn't equal good works, but faith proves itself in good words, in good works. So it's not what faith is, but it is what faith does, an aspect of that. In verse 18, James anticipates an argument. The argument is this, there's no necessary connection between faith and works, They're separate things and can exist separate from each other. Oh, really? James responds. All right, then. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It's like, I can have faithfulness without any of the things that you talked about. Okay. Show me your faithfulness. Tell me about it. Well, uh, it doesn't, it's... It exists, but in a sense, it doesn't exist without its demonstration, right? Oh, I feel faithful. Oh, but do you do faithful? Then what does it mean? Don't tell me about your love for people. Show me your love for people. Don't tell me about your generosity. Show me the receipts, but don't really, because left hand and right hand. Don't tell me about your faith in God. Show me your faith in God. That's what this text is saying. What does telling about your faith look like as opposed to showing your faith? What is the difference? Well, telling about faith as opposed to showing faith uh, can look like right answers. Telling about faith can just look like right answers. Uh, AI... Artificial intelligence technology has become fascinating, hasn't it? I mean, from like last November when ChatGPT really became popular and now like videos and images, are these even genuine? And I read about uh, whole groups of technology developers that are actually um, providing poison data for the AI samplers so that they can't continue to rip off the artists. Kind of an interesting idea. I entered this into ChatGPT this week. I said, tell me the Christian gospel. It's the same requirement we give to everyone who wants to become a member here at Risen King. In your own words, 
tell me what the gospel is. And here's the answer that ChatGPT gave me. The Christian gospel is the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is based on the belief that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for the sins of humanity, and rose from the dead on the third day. Through faith in Jesus Christ, people can be forgiven of their sins and receive eternal life with God in heaven. What's your vote? You read that, Keith. One of the elders is a good answer, right? Ken, fellow, uh, thumbs up. That, that passes my time. I mean, I love you all. That's better than some of the answers that, you know, that you've given. No, I'm just that's, that's a 100% orthodox answer. So does chat GPT have faith? I asked. <laughs> and so it said this, well, as an AI language model, I don't have the capacity to have faith or beliefs. Whoops. Oddly enough, James didn't use AI technology to make his point. I was really surprised by that 2,000 years ago. He gives an even more startling example of a right answer with no benefit. He talks about demons. The demons are perfectly orthodox in their concept of God. They know who their creator is. They are monotheistic. They are Trinitarian. We know who you are, the son of God. They know Jesus never sinned. They watched. They know that he rose from the dead. They watched. They are even shaken by the truth of God's majesty. They shudder. But that bare faith reduced to right answers has no saving benefit for them. While it is true that you can't be saved by faith in the wrong answers, it's also true that you can't be saved merely by knowing the right answers. There is more than faith, more to faith than that. It's important for us to remember. So kids, as you come to classes or sit around you know, on your sofa, your dining room table, and you hear about who God is, you hear about what Christ has done, and we ask you questions to see if you're, You've been paying attention, right? We want you to have the right answers, but there's more to it than that. It's not just that you can answer things correctly, but that your trust is actually in the one that you know about. And then that reveals itself in a change of life. That's the point of this passage. If you want to see a living faith, it isn't seen in right answers. Faith becomes visible through works. Otherwise, the faith is dead and useless. It is unable to save us. To show this, James takes us back to Genesis 22, where Father Abraham didn't have many sons. <laughs> he only had one, Isaac. And God called... <laughs> I love you, Mom. <laughs> like 90% like of you are like, what? But she's thought of like two or three songs I've mentioned in passing, and I'm going to get texts about them. That was great. Abraham only had one son, Isaac. God called on Abraham to offer up his son on the altar. And why did Abraham obey God in this? Why did he do it? Because he had faith in God. His faith was not just a vague concept. It was an active or acting reality. Abraham's faith was completed or perfected by his works. This makes Genesis 22 a vital part of understanding the truth of what was written about Abraham in Genesis 15:6, where Moses wrote, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
So we can't just have Genesis 15 and not have Genesis 22. And we know that because God gave us both. James says that Abraham's act of obedience in Genesis 22, this work actually fulfilled the scripture of Genesis 15. That's the language that he uses. And so the scripture was fulfilled that had said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His obedience to God's command in Genesis 22, decades later, fulfilled what God had said about him. In verse 24, James summarizes his point about Abraham. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And why is that? Skipping to verse 26, we see why. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. A worksless faith is dead, it's useless, while a faith that works is alive and useful. Now, if you've been following along with us through Genesis, you might remember back in October, I stood in this same pulpit and I asked you to turn from Genesis 15, 6 to Romans chapter 4. We spent a whole sermon seeing how Paul used this same phrase that's quoted. He quotes it in Romans, he quotes it in Galatians, he quotes, and then James quotes it here. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. And in Romans chapter 4, we heard Paul use Abraham as an example of justification by faith alone, an exclusiveness to it, apart from works, because we cannot be justified by our works. God justifies sinners who believe in his promises. He doesn't justify righteous people who believe in his promises. He doesn't justify righteous people who obey He takes unrighteous sinners and counts their faith as a righteousness that they don't have. He grants that to them or he imputes it to them. He he puts it on their account. God counts our faith as if it were righteousness apart from our works. And Romans 3.28 made that very clear. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. And this is God's verdict as our judge. He has declared us righteous on the basis of his imputing or transferring all of Jesus' good works to our account. So people have said, you know, yes, we're saved by works, just not our works. We're saved by Christ's works transferred to us. Well, how do I get that transfer? trusting in him. In case you missed it, let me show you what we just walked through. James 2.24, Romans 3.28. James said this, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What does Paul say in Romans 3? For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Martin Luther wanted to make this really clear in his German translation of the New Testament, and so he translated it, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law because of that exclusive separation from the works that he's trying to emphasize. For a long time, these verses have been pitted against each other. Uh, Keith told me about a sermon illustration that he, he had heard 
Imagine a dusty street in the Old West. Duh! It's high noon and a tumbleweed blows down the street. There's always a tumbleweed blowing down the street. Past two gunslingers. One is named Paul and the other is named James. Both men's guns are drawn and they're ready to fire. Now the question is this. In your mind's eye, are these men enemies or are they friends? Are they facing each other to duel or are they back to back firing at different enemies? Because that kind of positioning makes a big difference, doesn't it? And there are a few options here. One, that Paul wrote Romans. And it it goes around. It it travels across the known world. And it comes to wherever James is serving at this time. And he reads and he's like, oh, you have got to be kidding me. And he picks up pen, quill, and stylus, and papyrus. And he, he writes and be like, guys, Paul's wrong. It's not how we're justified. That's option one. Option two is that James writes early, probably more likely. James writes early. It circulates around. Paul's serving. Maybe he's in prison one of those times. He writes to, he's, he's like, what? He said, what? No, 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 no. So Paul writes to confront and contradict James, opposing his teaching in Scripture. Or option three, they're both addressing different but important issues. So whoever wrote first... It's not a matter of he's wrong, here's the truth, or he's wrong, here's the truth. They're not facing each other. It's that back-to-back. This guy's looking up at the window, and this guy has his eye on the saloon because there are multiple enemies that God's people face. That's what's happening here. And we know that that's what's happening here because of what we believe about God and what we believe about God's word. It answers the question for us that it can't be Paul opposing James. It can't be James opposing Paul. They have to be working side by side for the faith of the gospel because of God. God is eternally unchangeable. He is truth. He cannot lie. He cannot change his mind. He never makes mistakes. He never contradicts himself. And these characteristics of God's nature impact what we believe about the Bible. For if God is truth, and the Bible is truly God's word, then the Bible is truth. If God cannot make a mistake or contradict himself and the words of the Bible are breathed out of God's very mouth, then the Bible cannot make a mistake and it cannot contradict itself. The books of Romans and James are equally inspired, inerrant, and infallible, which means all those things that I just said, comes from God's mouth through these authors to his people, and it has no errors, and it cannot error, it cannot make a mistake, it cannot contradict itself. The same Holy Spirit who worked and moved in Paul as he wrote Romans worked or moved in James as he wrote his letter. It must be that these men are partners in God's work, proclaiming the same gospel and revealing the truths that we need for life and godliness, which is not just opposing one particular enemy. Paul speaks of the universal problem of sin. Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, is James ignorant of that? No. James says, you know, each person, all of us, we are all tempted when we are allured and enticed by our own desires. And then those desires, when they conceive, they give birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You're dead, Paul says. You're dead. 
James says. They're in agreement about the problem of sin. That impacts how we are going to be able to view James chapter 2. Both speak also of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Both speak of our need of forgiveness. Both speak of salvation from judgment that our sin deserves. Not as something that we can do, but as the Lord who is the one who saves and judges. Both emphasize that true faith is a transforming faith. See, Paul and James are not enemies. They are fellow servants and fellow workers in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The truths they are emphasizing do not contradict each other. They complement each other. Now, again, there's two ways we could look at compliment, right? Paul's like, James, I like your letter, man. It looks really good. That's compliment with an I. And Paul's like, you look so sharp, James. Like, that's not the compliment. Compliment is in work together. The different shapes of puzzle pieces that give us the whole picture. So Romans without James could be lacking something. James without Romans is missing something. We need both. And we know we need both because we have both. God has given to his people everything that we need and not a word of his truth is wasted on us. Paul is writing to those who think that their good works are good enough to save them. That's who Paul's writing to. And he says, that's false. And you know what? James would agree. So Paul writes that the basis of our justification, like Abraham, is faith alone apart from good works. James is writing to those who think their faith or their knowledge of God, who he is and what he has done, makes them exempt from life change. That's false. Paul would agree. So James writes that the proof of our justification, like Abraham, is good works and not faith on its own. It's the difference between the declaration of our faith, God declares us righteous once, and the demonstration of our faith that God makes us righteous gradually throughout our lives. We have Christ's righteousness through faith. We, have, we are transformed into his image across our lives. That's also an act of faith. We could say that Paul speaks of justification as the verdict of our righteousness. And James speaks of justification as the vindication of our righteousness or the vindication of that verdict. If we are ever tempted to think that content that doesn't change conduct is enough, we are wrong. Just say that again. If we think that content that doesn't change conduct is enough, we are wrong. That's demonic. True believers in God are transformed by God. Not true believers just need to be, not they ought to be, not they might be, they are. True believers are transformed by God. Both faith and its fruits are the gracious work of God in us through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Faith and the good works that inevitably flow from faith are so connected they can't be separated. There is no example given in all of Scripture of a faith that is not expressed. Thief on the cross. Why are you talking to him like that? This man is innocent. 
Lord, remember me. You're with me in paradise. Not because of his confession, because of his faith. But his faith couldn't help, even as the man is nailed to the cross, his faith couldn't help expressing itself because that's what faith does. There's no life without breathing. There's no faith without works. Good works are the, the, the expression of the life of faith. That's the point of this. They're so closely connected that you can speak of them as one thing. It's, not, it's kind of like the faith and repentance is the aspect of this as well. So we talk about, are we saved by faith? Are we saved by repentance? Yes. Are we saved by faith without repentance? No. Are you saved by repentance without faith? No. Why? Because they can't exist independent of each other. There is no repentance that doesn't flow from faith, and there is no faith that doesn't express itself in repentance. It's two sides of the same coin, as we use that phrase so often, but it's true. This is that's what faith is, trust in Christ. What does faith do? It transforms because it is a life of God that is worked in us through Christ by his Holy Spirit. Works without faith is self-righteousness that cannot save you. Faith without works, we could call dead orthodoxy or rightness. And dead rightness cannot save you. The Holy Spirit doesn't produce either of those things. The Holy Spirit produces a living faith, a working faith in his people. And that can save us. We don't save ourselves. Christ saves us through his Holy Spirit who produces a living faith that works. Faith plus works does not lead to justification. That first equation, if you want to call it that, that you can see on the screen, that is false. Faith leads to a justification plus works as the fruit of that justification. And this really is one of the most important battlegrounds of the Reformation. It wasn't the only battleground. But it was a heartbeat of that. Well, what, what does God's word say and not just traditions? God's word says that faith alone justifies us and then works follow. Whereas the Rome, and so it's, it's a verdict at the front end of it. The justification is front-loaded. And the Roman Catholic Church says, oh, no, 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 no. That makes for godless people. That makes for disobedience rampantly because the Roman Catholic Church was known for its godliness at the time. So they said, no, it's faith alone that leads to justification and then works are added. Works are built onto that frame. So the Roman Catholic Church were waiting. They still teach this. They are waiting for a verdict of justification. That you don't know what your standing is before God and you won't until the moment that you die. I hope you did good enough. That is not good news. It's not the gospel. It's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that through faith we are right with God, and that's just the start of his good work in us. In the Roman Catholic Church, though, they used James 2 to argue against Luther, or to argue against Calvin, to argue against other reformers whose names we know and names we don't know, to say it is anathema, it is a damnable heresy to say that faith alone leads to justification. And they said, you're not even talking about works. And the reformers said, that's not true. Let's look at the whole of Scripture. We can't insist that good works somehow contribute to our salvation, that we're waiting for that verdict of justification. Because of our sin, our good works could never do that. You see the problem with that first option, right? 
It's like we could ask, oh, faith plus good works, okay. What good works? I know many of you, I mean, you're here. Anybody come today, right now, sing so well, pay such good attention in the preaching of God's word right now or anything else that you're like, yep, I'm willing to offer this to God in place of my sin. Are you willing to do that? I'm actively preaching right now and I'm not willing to do that. What good works? What have you ever done that's had a heart of absolute purity and full devotion to God? Even Abraham, who demonstrated his obedience, had so many different instances of sin. Is that stain just somehow overlooked? Is that who God is? It doesn't work that way. You don't have good works. So they can't contribute to your salvation because they don't exist. On the basis of our faith and faith alone, God's verdict has already been declared on us. Thanks be to God. So John Calvin, one of the reformers, said this, just to contradict that, that uh, the, the things that were lobbed against them. He said, we dream not of a faith which is devoid of good works, nor of a justification which can exist without them. While we acknowledge that faith and works are necessarily connected, we, however, place justification in faith, not in works. They both exist. They are connected, but there is an ordering, and there's a priority of faith. It comes before works. But those works, they do come after the faith. I think it's helpful to just ask, you know, even though we have similarity of terms here, are we talking about the same thing? That's the aspect with Paul and James. Are they, are they using, they're using the same words, but do those words really have the same definitions for Paul and for James? And really, we can ask that across Scripture, and I think it is helpful in this. Words like righteousness or works. Consider David's words in Psalm 14. He writes this, Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, that's us, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And he gives that verdict. Oh, they have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And Paul quotes this verse in Romans 3 to show that we are all sinners. He, he takes what, who does good, and he said, who is righteous? Because that's that definition. Anybody who really does what is right, no. We are all sinners, including himself and David, who wrote that psalm. But what about David's words in Psalm 18, just a few chapters, a few psalms over, where David says this, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Has David somehow forgotten about his sinfulness? Was, was David himself somehow exempt from the all, not even one of Psalm 14? No. David's righteousness in Psalm 18, Lord, vindicate me according to my righteousness. He's saying, it's like, I have these sincere efforts of, at faithfulness to you. It's like, I love your law. I long to obey it. Did David always obey it? No. But his heart posture in the fear of the Lord was like, I'm devoted to you. I'm not devoted enough, but I am devoted to you. I sincerely want to obey and I sincerely struggle with sin, right? It's that reality of those things that flow from that. He's not claiming perfection. 
David is not claiming a sinlessness apart from God. He had just said that's not who he is or what he could possibly do. He's saying that, David is saying that, like Abraham, he feared the Lord. He delighted to obey him. And even though his efforts at that obedience, like Abraham, were far from perfect, those efforts, that longing to please God was there. That's a definition of righteousness, like a a direction that you're facing. Not just a destination, but like a direction that you're facing in. I long to do your will. I delight to do your will. I don't always do it, but it's, that's where my heart is. So this is really important. Which definition of righteousness is James using? When he talks about those good works, is he saying, it's like, you keep every point of the law perfectly or you're damned. And if your faith isn't, isn't together with perfect obedience to the law, you have no hope of salvation. Is that what James is saying? It can't be. It can't be because what he just said, if you obey the whole law and offend on one point with the assumption that you have, you're guilty of the whole law. So James can't talk about the reality of our sinfulness and the imperfection of our righteousness and then in the next verse be like, but you're not saved unless you have perfect righteousness attending with your faith. So it's inconsistent with James, not just inconsistent with Romans. So he has a different definition of righteousness. It's that that flowing from our relationship with God, not building up to a relationship with God. That's a big difference. James is talking about not the perfect righteousness of God that no one has except Christ. He's talking about a sincere effort of obedience that grows out of a love for God. Are our works good enough on their own? That's an important question. Brothers, sisters, are our good works good enough on their own? No, but here's the good news of the gospel. Do you know that your efforts as a child of God, cleansed by Christ, are pleasing to your Father? Did you know that? It's never good enough. Try harder, still not going to work. Right? Discipline yourself more, still not going to work but your good works offered to your Father are cleansed by the blood of Jesus and acceptable in his sight. It's the only way we can do anything that is pleasing to him. Jesus didn't just pay for our sins. He cleanses our sinful good works. It's actually to our Father. They are pleasing to him. Paul and James are using different definitions of righteousness or works. They're also using different definitions of justification. I want to take a little bit of time on this, not, not a lot. I only have like a paragraph. We'll see how that goes. They use the same word for justification. So again, I'm not claiming that it's just like, oh, they're using different words. They're not. They're using the exact same words, but words don't only have one meaning. That's, that's important. I don't take a lot of time on that, but it is true. Words don't always have the same meaning. So which, which way are they using this? Are, are they both saying declaration of righteousness? Are they both talking about a verdict? Or are they both talking about a vindication of a decision that was made showing the righteousness of something that happened? Like Paul doesn't use the word, um, doesn't, doesn't use the verb justify to talk about God. But he does say this. God who forgave sinners without good works in the Old Testament. This is Romans chapter 3. That God forgave sinners who had not made sufficient payment for their sins. None of them had. And then he says, so that God could show his righteousness 
while he's the justifier of the ungodly, God demonstrating his righteousness due time, Christ came. And Christ's payment on the cross didn't just move forward for us and our forgiveness. That payment moved backwards. The righteousness of Christ lived in those 33 years were counted to Abraham who had died millennia before. Abraham was justified on the basis of a righteousness that had not actually been accomplished yet. And so you could rightly ask like, okay, God, like you're counting him righteous, but like on the basis of whose righteousness? And it's kind of like, you're going to have to wait for that. And generations of believers in God counted righteousness, forgiven of their sins, welcomed into heaven on the basis of a work that Christ had not completed yet. And then once Christ completed that work, God in his justifying of sinners is justified in his righteousness. He was never wrong, but it was proven that his work was good. Do you see what I mean? And that's, that's inside of that shown to be righteous. That's a vindication type of justification. That's what James is talking about. He's not talking about a declaration of a verdict because God can't look at your works and say that is righteous. It's not. But God can look at your faith and look at Christ's righteousness and count you as righteous. And that faith transforms. And so it is then a validation of the work that God had done, a demonstration of its reality. Paul is using number one, declaration. James is using number two, validation or vindication, demonstration of that. They're also really, they're using different definitions of faith. Paul's definition of faith is a wholehearted trust in Christ for everything necessary for salvation. It's nothing less than the demonstration of spiritual life in a formerly dead sinner. James' definition of faith is obviously less than that. Because how, where Paul's definition, like the full-orbed definition of faith would include the works that flow out from it and the transformation that happens, the trust, James is saying, it's like, sure, you've got it in your head and you know in your heart that it's true, but you have not trusted. You know the facts and you may be convinced of them, but you have not trusted in Christ. And so with that separation, it's not real faith. It's just that content stuff. It's demonic. James' definition focuses here, not on the faith that we could have, but the faith that some would have, what is known, what someone is convinced of. It does not include the transformation. That's the exact point that James is trying to make. And then he gives us these examples. This is the last thing that we'll look at. Because we naturally wonder, what kind of works does faith produce? Because if we were to poll, if you're following along with me, and poll you, like, who wants faith without works? <laughs> no, we're kind of like, okay, well, what works? Because we just kind of keep asking that, what, do, what must I do to be saved? It's kind of a wrong-headed question here, but I, I get it. How much good works are necessary to show that my faith is real? Maybe that's the question that's in your heart. I think it's a good question. Bless you. But the answer to the question, how many or how much, or what kind of good works are necessary to show that my faith is real, it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. It's not 10 years of obedience to 10 commands. It's not 50 years of obedience to. It's not 100 years of obedience to. It's not 10 acts of obedience or 100 acts of obedience a day or 1,000 acts of obedience a day. 
not a count of how many right words you say, how many times you come to church, how much money or what kind of percentage it was that you gave. It's none of those things. It's not a one-size-fits-all answer. It's actually a matter of the heart shown in gradual progress or gradual transformation. Consider the different examples that he gives. He starts off with Abraham. Abraham's fear of the Lord in Genesis 2, his living faith and his devoted love for God as his father. Abraham's faith showed itself in his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. So that's the works that proved his faith. That will not be the test that you were put through. Go carry your kid to a, to a mountain and kill him. You did not hear that from the Lord. <laughs> Don't do it. That was a one-time test. Right? So, but that was huge. Those were unique circumstances built by God for the testing of Abraham. But Abraham's faith showed itself in willingness to the test applied to him. But he had had decades of knowing God, all of this truth, and also a building up of good works. So you have Abraham almost on one end of the spectrum. Big promises with big faith. Then you have the other end of the spectrum. Rahab, the prostitute in a Canaanite city, running some sort of a tavern or something. Who knows what else went on there? Well, what would faith look like for her? Well, Rahab's living faith in Joshua 2, her devoted trust to a God that she barely knew, showed itself in her willingness to commit treason against her city to align with Yahweh and his people. That was a big ask, a big test for Rahab. Will you trust in the walls of your city and love the people around you or will you love Yahweh, who you have only heard of, and his people, whom you've never met? And Rahab, the sinner, the prostitute, says, I throw in everything with Yahweh. Her faith showed itself. Very different test, but the same essential response. I will give everything to the Lord. See, different types of tests. We're, we're going to look at different types of tests for ourselves as well. And James gives his own type of tests. James 1, verses 26 and 27. You think you're religious. You think you have faith. You don't bridle your tongue. But you deceive your heart. That person's religion is worthless. Religion or faith that is pure, undefiled before God the Father is this, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, keeping oneself unstained from the world. So you can't have a content that just results in this selfish, stingy, loveless life. That's not what faith does in the lives of a person. Then he pushes it even further. This is like, oh, you've come to your gathering. How nice. And two visitors walk in the door and one is clean, it smells nice. It's got some money jangling in his pocket, right next, jingling, right next to him, and his little money bag. And you're like, ah, that guy. Like, boy, he's going to be good for the church. We could pay off our mortgage a little bit faster. Why don't you come and sit? Well, maybe not in the front. Nobody wants to sit in the front. Like, you can sit in this most comfortable seat. We're glad to have you. Let's welcome you into our church. Then someone else comes in. They don't smell good. Then their clothes don't look nice. And you're like, you know, maybe you could sit in the back. It's not what faith does. It's useless. We read about the same thing from the Matthew readings today. Greeting our friends, 
blessing those who bless us, loving those who loved us. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. That's not what a transformed life looks like. Why would you welcome those who would benefit you now? Trust in me and give the coat to the cold person and give the food to the hungry. Otherwise, what good is your faith? What good is your profession of faith in Christ when you, unlike Christ, will not love those who are in need of it? Welcome the poor and not just the rich. Make the tree good and its fruit will be good. This is what Jesus taught. Or the tree is bad, the fruit will be bad. So what's going on with your tree? And you don't find that out by ripping it, cutting open the the stalk, ripping up the roots to try to decide. So what's going on with my trees right now as they lie dormant? The spring comes in. Are the sprouts going to come? Will there be leaves? Will there be fruit? Are they good trees? Are they alive? Are they bad trees? Are they dead? Not just time will tell, but what will tell? Fruit will tell. Is our faith just content? Or is our faith the full, wholehearted trust that leads to transformation? Is it, is it our thing for God or is it God's work in us? God's work in us, living faith, changes us, begins that. And you're just kind of like, okay, and I hear this and I think about it all week. And I'm just kind of like, okay, so obey more? Try harder to tack works onto the tree? That's not, that doesn't sound right. Does that sound right? That sounds like reliance on myself. So we look to Romans 12. It's fitting to go to Paul to finish it up, isn't it? I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Remember God, what God has done for you in Christ. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Kind of sounds like Isaac, doesn't it? Living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. And this is one of the craziest passages of Scripture. It's an idea that just goes over and over again. Be transformed. Doesn't say transform yourself. Be transformed. So who transforms us? God transforms us. Go to the God in whom you trust and say, I know my good works, they're not there, they're not good enough, what I offer, it just doesn't work. I haven't done, I never can do, I need you. I need you to show the livingness of my faith in how I, how I treat my wife, how I parent my kids, how I love my neighbor, how I treat the poor or the hungry, how I welcome people here, what I look, uh, look at, on my phone, how I respond to my boss at work, how diligently I do my schoolwork, whatever it might be. I don't have the good works that just show how much I love you. Transform me. God, transform me. Do you think he's going to say no? He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Be transformed, Risen King Church, by Christ, the renewing of your mind. And may he be glorified as the fruit is the work of what he did and has done in us. Let's pray.